had intended on this being last week's episode, but if you listened on Friday evening, you know that things kind of went sideways. And if you didn't listen Friday night, long story short, I decided to move the podcast to a different platform, mostly to save money. I also decided to slightly change the name of the podcast to fit more with its theme. So last week was spent moving all of the episodes, reconnecting it with all of the sites that you listen to us on, um, and then updating all of our social media accounts to reflect all of the changes that I made. So here we are, and here we go. It's Monday, and that means it's time for a new episode of Mystery, Murder, and Magic. And here's your host. Andrea Lee and sometimes Alex. Last Monday marked the 88th anniversary of the deaths of bank robbers Bonnie and Claude. I have to say that their story has held a fascination for me as long as I can remember. And I'd have to say that's probably because of the 1967 Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty movie. But once I had watched that movie a few times, I started doing a little bit of my own research into what their lives had been like. Bonnie Elizabeth Parker was born on October 1st, 1910 in Rowena, Texas, and she was a middle child. Her dad, Charles, he was a bricklayer, and her mom, Emma, later worked as a seamstress after Charles passed away when Bonnie was only four years old. During Bonnie's sophomore year in high school, she met Roy Thornton, and soon the two dropped out of school and got married just six days before her 16th birthday. Can't imagine getting married when I'm 15 years old, but anyway. um, Now, even though they never divorced, their marriage didn't last very long because he would leave and stay gone for long periods of time, and he had more than one run-in with the law. And when the marriage was over, Bonnie moved back in with her mom and started working as a waitress. Claude Chestnut Barrow was born on March 24, 1909 to a very poor family in Ellis County, Texas. He was the fifth of seven children. His dad, Henry, and his mom, Kumi, moved their family to Dallas in the early 1920s, and as I mentioned, the family was very poor. In fact, they were so poor that when they first moved to Dallas, they spent the first few months there living under the wagon that they had driven, and after that, they moved into a tent. Clyde was only 17 the first time he was arrested. Apparently, Clyde ran from the police when they came to question him about a a rental car that he hadn't returned. And not long after that, he and his brother Buck were arrested for stealing turkeys. Over the next few years, he would get in trouble for cracking safes, robbing stores, and stealing cars. And in 1930, 
Clyde met Bonnie through a mutual friend, and they began spending a lot of time together. Not long after they met, Clyde was convicted on charges of auto theft and sentenced to Eastham Prison Farm at the age of 21. But he was able to escape from there with the help of a weapon that Bonnie had smuggled into him. He wouldn't be out long, though, because he was captured and taken back to the prison farm. While he was in that prison, he was raped multiple times, so in retaliation, he attacked the person who had did that to him with an iron pipe and killed him. And another prisoner took responsibility for that murder, though, because that prisoner was already in, in there for life. So, I mean, you know, what else could they do to him probably was their thinking. Now, Clyde wasn't one to really want to commit himself to hard labor. And to avoid it while he was in prison, he purposely had two of his toes chopped off. Now, no one really knows if he did it himself or if he had another prisoner do it, but um, he just wasn't about that hard labor life. Now, not only did he get out of the hard labor, but he had a limp for the rest of his life from that. And in a weird twist of fate, Clyde was paroled six days after the toes were chopped off. His mom had secretly been petitioning to have her son released. Now, once he was out, he never really talked to his family about what had happened to him while he was in prison. But his sister Marie said that he was definitely not the same person when he was released as when he was put in prison. Now, once he was out of prison, Claude went back to robbing stores and gas stations, and soon he had a friend helping him. It was a friend that he had made in prison, and that friend's name was Ralph Fultz. Now, the two of them carried out a string of burglaries that mostly involved gas stations and stores. And they did have a goal in mind, and the, what they wanted to do was accrue enough money and weapons to raid the Eastern Prison. Because Claude really had it out for that prison because what have had to, of what had happened to him while he was in that prison. Well, after a while, Bonnie joined the two men in their crimes. Bonnie and Fultz were arrested after a failed hardware store robbery but Bonnie ended up being released when the grand jury failed to indict her. Now, Fultz was tried, convicted, and served time for his part in that attempted robbery. And once he was released from, released from prison, he never reunited with Bonnie and Clyde. During the time that Bonnie was still being held in jail for that attempted robbery, Clyde had been the getaway driver in a robbery. This is a totally separate robbery but this was where um, a store owner had actually been shot and killed and the store owner's wife fingered Claude as one of the gunmen but Claude had never even gotten out of the car now, a couple of months later in August Claude Raymond Hamilton and Ross Dyer were drinking moonshine out in the parking lot at a dance when they were approached by Sheriff C.G. Uh, Maxwell and a deputy named Eugene Seymour well, Clyde and Hamilton opened fire on the two uh, law officers, and they seriously injured Maxwell, and it killed Moore. And over the course of the Barrow Gang's string of crimes, they would end up murdering nine members of law enforcement. Now, also over the course of time, the Barrow Gang would grow. Deputy Jones joined Bonnie and Clyde on Christmas Eve in 1932. Now, he was only 16 years old at that time. On Christmas Day, Clyde and Jones killed Doyle Johnson while still in his car. 
The following March, Clyde's son, or Clyde's brother, Buck, and his wife, Blanche, came for a visit after Buck had been granted a full pardon from prison. And while they were there, they tried to convince Clyde to surrender to the police. And at the time, Bonnie and Clyde, along with David D., were living in a hideout in Joplin, Missouri. The men would stay up all hours of the night, drinking and making all kind of noise, so it wasn't like they were really trying to lay low. And once while they were cleaning the house, Clyde accidentally fired a brown and automatic rifle, but none of the neighbors showed up to see what was going on, but somebody did call the cops. So, you know, that got their attention, and in mid-April, the police set up a sting operation to try and nab what they thought was a bootlegger operation. Well, Clyde Buck and WD exited the house and opened fire on the cops that was outside of the house and it killed Detective um, Harry McGinnis and a constable by the name of J.W. Harriman. Bonnie also came out firing a bar, which is a brown and automatic rifle. But um, those billet bullets hit a nearby tree causing splinters to launch into this highway patrolman, his name was Sergeant G.B. Caller, and it those splinters launched in his face. Well, in the process, the law enforcement officers fired 14 shots at the Barrow Gang. W.D. was hit once by one of those bullets in the neck area, and one deflected off of a button on Clyde's suit. And Buck was actually grazed by a bullet that had ricocheted off of a wall. And the gang they did get away, but they left pretty much all of their belongings behind in that hideout. And that included their weapons, Buck's parole papers, a poem that Bonnie had written, and several rolls of film. The police had those rolls of film developed, and some of the pictures depicted the gang posing and pointing weapons at each other. The Joplin Globe even transmitted over the newswire the poem that Bonnie had written along with a photo of her with a cigar in her mouth and a handgun in her hand. And they didn't use the word viral back then, but that picture and poem went viral and was quite the popular topic of discussion around the country. Now, over the next few months, the gang really traveled all around the Midwest, taking, like, they would take their victims as hostages, and often they were killing police officers. Now, the hostages they took, they would release them, but they would release them very far from home. But now the good thing is, if there's anything that good that could come out of it, they would leave them with a little bit of money to help them get back home. If anyone got in the Barrow Gang's way, though, they didn't hesitate to shoot them. Didn't matter if it was a friendly citizen or a police officer. Most of their crimes were cold-blooded. And as the public became more and more aware of what was going on with the Barrow Gang, law enforcement really started stepping up their efforts to end their streak. At first, it was fascinating reading all the stories written about them in the local papers, but soon it led to these major problems for them because everyone knew who they were, like from all those pictures that was being published. I mean, they could no longer walk into restaurants or hotels without being recognized, so soon they were just having to like camp out and cook by a fire. And there was also the fact that there were five people crammed into one one vehicle. And you know what that's like with kids. So just imagine five grumpy bank robbers. Talk about wanting to pull the car over. 
when Jean, Bonnie, Clyde, and D.W. left with Clyde driving. And Clyde didn't see this warning sign that the bridge was out, and he flipped the car into a ditch. Well, Bonnie received third-degree burns to her right leg that was so bad that the muscles contracted and caused her leg to draw up. They couldn't really go get medical help, I mean, obviously. And the rest of the gang wasn't sure she was even going to make it. The skin on her leg was pretty much gone from her hip to her ankle. And you, they said you could even see the bone. And Bonnie couldn't walk very well after that either. She would either be carried by Clyde or she'd have to hop on her good leg. Well, while the gang was hiding out and letting Bonnie rest, Buck and D.W. attempted to rob a bank. But they messed up and the gang had to take off again. In July, they checked into the Red Crown Tourist Court in Platte City, Missouri. The gang rented both of the cottages there. Blanche had checked in saying that there were only three guests, but the owner of the establishment could clearly see that there were five of them as they were getting out of the car. So they really didn't try to conceal themselves. Plus, right in close proximity of those cottages was the Red Crown Tavern. And it was a restaurant that was very popular among the Highway Patrol in Missouri. And soon, the owners started noticing other little odd things about the gang. About, you know, things they were doing. They had taped newspapers over the windows of their cabin. And Blanche, she wore pants, which was very odd for women back in those days. I guess that caught his eye, you know, that automatically made her a criminal by just wearing pants. But anyway, and another thing that caught the owner's attention was that when Blanche would pay for anything there on the property, she always paid with coins. Now, like I said, the Missouri Highway Patrol frequently ate there at that tavern, and one of the patrons there was Captain William Hauser of the Highway Patrol. So the owner decided to mention all these odd things that had been noticing to Captain Hauser. Well, one day while they, like, Clyde and D.W. went into town to buy bandages and medicine for Bonnie's leg and a few other odds and ends, but something about them made the pharmacist suspicious and he alerted the police and they started keeping tabs on those cabins they were staying in. Well, at 11 p.m. that night, Law enforcement, with backup from Kansas City, showed up with an armored car and approached the cabins with Thompson machine guns or submachine guns. But when the gunfight started, those submachine guns were no match for Clyde's bar. They were able to escape when a bullet caused a short circuit in the armored car's horn. Well, the police mis had mistaken that for a ceasefire signal. But Anyway, the Barrow gang got away, but not without injury. Buck had been shot in the forehead, shattering part of his skull, and even exposing part of his brain. And Blanche, she had been blinded in both eyes by shattering glass that, from, you know, the fragments of, of glass that had shattered around her and it got in her eyes and blinded her. From there, the gang went to an abandoned amusement park called Daxfield Park, and they set up camp. Buck was alive, but he wasn't doing well at all. And as a matter of fact, his condition was so bad from the blood loss and brain injury, at one point, 
Clyde and D.W. dug a grave for him. Some local residents saw some bloody bandages, and they alerted the police, who believed that the Barrow Gang was camping out in the area. Law enforcement and about 100 locals surrounded the area. Bonnie, Clyde, and D.W. were able to escape on foot. But, you know, Buck had been shot in the back, so he and Blanche were captured, because Blanche wasn't going to leave him behind either. But, I mean, she very well couldn't have gotten around anyway because she was blind. Buck was taken to a nearby hospital for all of his injuries, but he ended up dying five days later. Now, over the next six weeks, Bonnie, Clyde, and D.W. continued their reign of terror in states like Colorado, Minnesota, and Mississippi. So you can kind of see they were really doing a lot of traveling to these random different places, and I believe that was probably just to throw off the cops so that, you know, they couldn't really closely follow their trail. Well, in September of that same year, they decided to do something risky and go back into Dallas so they could see their families. You know, I kind of believe that maybe they knew their time was almost up and they wanted to see their families one more time. Now, um, it had been four months since they had even seen them, but they left DW behind in Dallas and they can, uh, Bonnie and Clyde continued on to Houston. No, I'll take that back. I said that backwards. D.W. left them in Dallas. Bonnie and Clyde stayed in Dallas. But D.W. continued on to Houston. And that's where his mom had moved to. But he was arrested there on November 16th and returned to Dallas. Well, through that fall, Clyde kept up with his robbing and stealing while his family and Bonnie's family took care of her medical needs. Near the end of November, they barely got away from police when they had tried to meet up with some family members near Sowers, Texas. Sheriff Smoot Schmid, Deputy Bob Alcorn, and Deputy Todd, uh, Ted Hinton were, they were hiding nearby just waiting for him. But when Clyde drove up, he just knew that something was not right. So he drove past the family's cars and that's when law enforcement opened fire. Now, none of the family members were hurt, but both Bonnie and Clyde had been struck in their legs with bullets from a bar. But even though they had been shot, they were still able to escape. Not long after that, the grand jury of Dallas handed down an indictment against both Bonnie and Clyde for the murder of Deputy Malcolm Davis, who they had killed in January of that same year. And that was the first official murder charge against Bonnie. The next year, Clyde planned a breakout for several inmates at Easton. Well, this caused a lot of negative publicity for the Texas Creation System, and maybe that was what Clyde had been after all along. I mean, like I said, he really had it out for the prisons there. During this breakout, though, a somewhat new member of the Barrow Gang, his name was Joe Palmer, shot Major Joe Croson, and he died a few days afterwards. This really brought down the heat, and stepped up the manhunt for the gang and prison chief Lee Simmons promised Croson before he died that those involved in that breakout would be hunted down and killed. Another member who had recently joined the gang, his name was Henry Methvin, decided that he would turn against the Barrow gang and he helped set up the ambush of Bonnie and Clyde. Former Texas Ranger Captain Frank Hamer 
was given the task of hunting down the gang. In the past, he had been credited with 53 kills, so it seemed that he was the man for the task. Starting on January or February 10th of that year, he became Bonnie and Clyde's shadow. On Easter Sunday, which was also April Fool's Day during that year, two highway patrolmen stopped their motorcycles near the intersection of Route 114 and Dove Road, close to Grapevine, Texas. They were thinking that a motorist needed their help, but as they approached the car, either Clyde, Bonnie, or Mathman opened fire, killing both of the officers. And so, the death of two more police officers ramped up the efforts of stopping the Barrow gang even more. By May of 1934, Clyde had 16 warrants and four states on him for murder, robbery, auto theft, escaped, and assault. And Hamer was still hot on their trail, and the entire time, he was studying their moves and taking notes. Soon, Hamer was able to predict where they would go next. The gang was due to visit Methvin's family in Louisiana. On May 21st, the posse from Texas found out that Bonnie and Clyde were supposed to meet Ivy Methvin in Beanville Parish, which had been where the gang agreed to meet up if they somehow got separated. Bonnie and Clyde had become separated from Methvin back in Shreveport, so the posse decided to set up an ambush on Louisiana State Highway 154. But the gang never came through there that evening. But the posse just didn't give up. And they kept hiding there for the next day and a half. Just as they were about ready to give up, they heard what they thought sounded like a car barreling towards them. And like I said, Bonnie and Claude had been separated from Methvin and Shreveport. But that was because he had been arrested. And to save his own skin, he decided to cooperate with the police. Police had talked Methvin into parking his truck on the side of the road because they were hoping that Clyde would stop to talk to him there. Well, when the speeding car approached where they were hiding, where the police and those were hiding, the six lawmen opened fire on it. Clyde actually died from the very first shot that was fired, and it struck him in the head. The officers could hear Bonnie screaming inside of the car and decided to empty 130 rounds into the car, killing Bonnie also. In the end, the car had 112 bullet holes, and 20 of the, 28 of those bullets had struck Bonnie and Clyde. But the official autopsy report said that Clyde had 17 entrance wounds, and Bonnie had 26. Now, one of those shots had severed Clyde's spinal cord. There were so many bullet holes that the mortician had a hard time embalming their bodies. And I should mention here that when Bonnie died, she was still wearing the wedding ring that had been given to her by her husband, who she had never divorced. Bonnie and Clyde wanted to be buried side by side, but Bonnie's family, they just wouldn't allow it because her mom said that Clyde had had Bonnie in life and wouldn't have her in death too. So she brought her back home. 
More than 20,000 people attended Bonnie's funeral on May 25th, and her family had a really hard time like navigating their way through that crowd to the graveside. And originally, Bonnie was buried in Fish Trap Cemetery, but in 1945, her body was moved to the, a newer cemetery called Crown Hill Cemetery in Dallas. Clyde's funeral was held the day after Bonnie's at sunset, and he was buried in Western Heights Cemetery in Dallas beside his brother Buck. There has been some interest from some of Bonnie's family, I believe it's a great niece or a niece, um, to finally have Bonnie lay to rest beside Clyde, but they're saying that it would take a lot of money and a court order to make it happen. But those that want her moved, they're not giving up. Now, while I love the 1967 movie that I mentioned earlier, I feel like they left a lot out of, you know, like a lot of facts and events. Maybe it was for time, or maybe because movies were more censored back then, I don't know. Um, but if you've, if you've never watched this movie, it's worth checking out. I have it on DVD if y'all want to borrow it. No, seriously, check it out if you have a chance. Well, that's all I have for tonight's mystery, murder, and mayhem. Be sure to check out this week's Throwback Thursday, and I'll be back on Friday evening with an all-new What the Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>